Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our new membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Aaron Friedberg, Princeton professor and author of the new book, Getting China Wrong. Uh, Aaron, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And congratulations on the book. So how are we getting China wrong? Well, uh, I think the, the heart of the, the problem or of the mistake that I think we've made over the last three decades is underestimating the Chinese Communist Party and misunderstanding its its objectives and its determination to hold on to political power. Uh, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that this is the case for for quite some time, people expected that China would sort of naturally evolve and, and liberalize. I, I like the way that at the beginning of the book, you uh, say that writing about contemporary China, uh, it's, it's like trying to hit a very fast moving object, you say, from the pitching deck of a ship at sea. Both the target and the platform from which it is being observed are in constant, if irregular, motion. I'm very glad that I put that in there because uh, that was written in the fall of uh, 2021. Of course, the book has just come out and I, I was trying to say that many things will happen, undoubtedly, uh, but that the general direction of events, I think, will remain as it is. And of course, I couldn't possibly have foreseen what was going to happen in Ukraine. But uh, I do think that the the overall arguments uh, still stand. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's the other point that actually, even though it was written uh, before uh, those kind of events, that you make clear that the overall trajectory is the thing that really interests you. And, and that is clear, you say, that China is moving towards a deepening political repression, uh, expanded economic statism, and uh, particularly a more aggressive posture towards the United States. Yes, and all of those things, I think, have only in intensified and become more evident over the last year or so. Uh, so in that sense, the, the prediction of continuity was unfortunately correct. I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, we, we talk about uh, events in the here and now and obviously uh, things like Ukraine and, and, and the oil crisis and the possibility of recession and uh, all of these kind of things have an impact. But, but it is interesting that you do talk about the long term. And part of the argument, it seems to me, of the book is that you say that we've been too late, really, to, to wake up to the threat of China. We've done so without any sense of urgency or common purpose. And it's really only now that the democracies are going through the quite painful process of hammering out new policies and strategies. Yes, uh, we stuck with policies and a strategy that uh, really wasn't working uh, for a couple of decades, perhaps longer than we should have. Uh, and it's just taken a long time for people to wake up to this and to acknowledge it. I think even now we're not sufficiently uh, alarmed, and I don't think it's a, a sufficient sense of urgency, but there's certainly more now than there was only a few years ago. And it's not just in the United States. I just came back from a meeting of U.S. and European China specialists in, in Sweden last week, and I was struck by the extent to which there's been a convergence in views on the part of both the Americans and the Europeans, and particularly about the challenge posed by China. 
I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, you describe uh, President Donald Trump's approach to China as crude and, and counterproductive. It, it, it did occur to me that in some ways, Donald Trump seems to be the first president, though, who sounded the alarm on China in a way that actually is consistent with your own book and analysis. I think that's right. Uh, if if he did one thing right, uh, it was to uh, to sound that alarm. I think of him as sort of someone who was so indifferent to expert opinion uh, and so inclined to be provocative and so on that he was willing to sort of break the glass and sound the alarm. I don't know that he really knew that's what he was doing, but the effect really was to speed up a process of reassessment that I think was already underway. So he deserves some credit for that. And it, it, it is in, interesting, again, how important intimidation is to your overall argument and of, of what China is about, that, you know, as you point out, Beijing's own strategy with the increased belligerence, the rocket rattling, you, you call it, does seem intended to actually discourage Western uh, democracies and also to divide them. Definitely. I think that's really the key uh, to Beijing's strategy for dealing with the West. It's to uh, intimidate, to deter, uh, to divide so that China can continue to advance towards its objectives and continue to build up its its power. Uh, I don't think they are inclined to back off. I don't think at this point they're particularly impressed by what we or our allies have done to try to oppose them. And in any event, I think they, they don't feel that they have any choice but to push ahead towards their goals. They think our animosity towards them as they, as they see it uh, is uh, ineradicable. There's nothing they can do uh, to alleviate it, and therefore they just have to proceed and, and uh, push, as they would see it, push back as hard as they can. So, so did we get it completely wrong over the last uh, two or three decades? I mean, we thought that engagement with China would bring them perhaps into the rules-based international order, might open China up as a more liberal society. Um, it, it seems to me that the argument of the book is that that was a wrong-headed strategy. I make the argument that uh, the policy of engagement was was not a blunder in the sense that it was obvious from the beginning that it necessarily had to fail, but that it was a gamble. Uh, it was an experiment. Uh, and the odds against it succeeding were always quite long. The problem is that we kept sort of doubling down on that bet and ignoring the accumulating evidence that the strategy wasn't working. Uh, it really had three uh, expectations. One was that welcoming China into the existing liberal international order at the end of the Cold War would encourage its leaders to see that their interests lay in upholding that uh, that order, not trying to change it or overthrow it. Second, that integrating China increasingly into a globally connected uh, international economic system would promote tendencies towards the liberalization of China's own economy. Uh, so a movement away from statism and more and more in the direction of market-driven economic growth. And then third and last, something which in retrospect, some people have tried to downplay, but I think if you look at the record, there was quite a bit of this, certainly in the statements of, of leaders, not only in the United States, the idea that in time, engagement, economic growth would promote political liberalization in China. So China would get richer, it would get stronger, but it wouldn't pose a challenge to the United States or the democratic world because over time, it would become more like us.
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's been uh, all kinds of backsliding and backside covering and rewriting of <laughs> history uh, with regard to Russia recently. But it, but it's the same with China. As you say, there's no getting away from it that experts, officials, political leaders, they all argued that, or many argued, that uh, engagement with China economically would lead to political liberalisation and its incorporation into the US world order. I think that's undeniable. Uh, there are people who say, well, uh, I didn't really believe that, uh, expert X or expert Y, or that political leaders said that because they wanted to rally public opinion. Uh, of course, even if that was true, uh, those arguments were still powerful, but I think they were genuinely uh, expressed. They were uh, they were held by successive generations of US uh, political officials, government officials. Uh, I think people believed that this is what we were doing and should be doing and that eventually it would work and there was a lot of uh, reluctance to acknowledge that it hadn't that's really only uh, happened in the last couple of years and you see it for example in the statements by the biden administration its recent uh, expression of its china strategy it starts by saying we acknowledge that we can't change china well that's a huge shift from where we started out 30 years ago. Yeah, I, it is that um, Anthony Blinken's um, uh, speech at GW that you're referring to that. I mean, a, a lot of commentators ha have remarked that uh, how little there was actually in, in terms of strategy or even tactics uh, in that speech. Yes, I think in that sense, the speech was, was a disappointment. But uh, what are presented as speeches about strategy or public statements of strategy often are uh, they tend to be statements of high principle or statements of what our objectives are. Yeah, there was not was not a tremendous amount of strategy in there. Uh, and I don't know if it's because there are still divisions within the administration about how it should be expressed uh, or whether that they they feel it's it's just not advisable diplomatically to say too much. But uh, there was not a whole lot there, but we know the general direction in which they're going, and it's really not much different from uh, the Trump administration. I mean, there are uh, some important differences in the rhetoric used, but that idea, that central idea that we have to put aside the notion that the object of our strategy should be to change China is the same as the one that was expressed by the previous administration. And that was the first time uh, U.S. policymakers had really acknowledged that. So do you think we've we've finally moved away from what you argue is that misreading of, of Chinese intentions over the last uh, three decades that essentially it's never been about full economic liberalisation for China, let alone political liberalisation? I'm not sure. I like to think we have, uh, but I think uh, there are people who still sort of cling to this belief. And the new form that it takes, I guess, is the argument that uh, well, yes, it's true. Uh, things don't seem to be working out, but perhaps this is just because of Xi Jinping and he only took power in 2012 and he won't be around forever. Uh, and maybe once he's gone, things will things will change. And I suppose that's possible, uh, but it certainly is not the way things are, are going now. Uh, and yes, I do think people have have come to a, a deeper and I think more accurate recognition of certainly the nature of the CCP system. I think we're coming to grips with the the character of the economic policies they're pursuing, and maybe first and foremost, the fact that they're behaving now in what, from our point of view, and not just in the United States, but in democracies in Europe and in Asia, uh, is a very 
aggressive uh, uh, and even provocative fashion. So that's really woken people up. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, China definitely seems to have moved off the back foot onto this much more aggressive posture, uh, especially in, in, in its own backyard. I mean, do, do you think that that is about challenging the American military presence in the region? Or do you think it is something more existential about the threat or the idea of democracy itself? I think it's both. Uh, and it's now, yes, it's regional in focus, but it's also increasingly global. I think from from the end of the Cold War to a degree that we really didn't understand at the time, China's leaders saw us and saw this wonderful liberal international system into which we were trying to welcome them as an existential threat. It was rooted in values that were inimical to the values on which their system was based. Uh, so they had to, as Deng Xiaoping advised, hide and buy. They had to lie low while they built up their strength. Uh, but they were never comfortable with this. They always felt threatened with it. And I think they always intended or hoped that as they grew stronger, they could push back, push back against the American presence in in the Indo-Pacific, but also push back against these, as they would say, so-called universal values, what they saw as American dominance of international institutions and so on. And that's really what they've started to do in the last 10 years or so. And it's, it's really undeniable. Yeah, and one of the things I found genuinely fascinating uh, in the book is the emphasis that you put on ideas that, you know, President Xi, you point out, he see he recognizes the importance of ideas perhaps more than any leader since Mao. I believe that's true. I think um, he recognizes that uh, the party needs to do more uh, to cement its legitimacy or to, uh, its grip over the Chinese people and it can't just do that through coercion and now it can't just do it through co-optation or promising people that uh, it will deliver economic rewards. Um, and it's true that some that Deng Xiaoping recognized this and to a certain extent Zhang Zemin and Hu Jintao also toyed with nationalism as uh, an additional factor uh, in the the party's program to, to bind the people to the party. But Xi Jinping has really elevated this to the, I think, to the central uh, element in his ideological construct uh, and the idea of the China dream and that China is going to achieve its, its destiny, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. I think that's really the central animating principle uh, of his policies, both domestic and international. And I think it has it has resonance. It certainly has resonance uh, with people in China more than the endless repetition of you know Xi Jinping thought and Maoism, Marxism, Leninism, and so on. That's that's okay for the party, but for people in general, I think this nationalism is much more potent. Does that does that contrast with uh, Western ideas? I mean, Joe Biden was elected to the Senate in 1972, the year that Nixon went to China. I mean, it, it, is that symbolic? Do you think of the fact that maybe there haven't been many new ideas on China since since Kissinger? You mean our understanding of what was going on? Yeah, or, that, or... That, that essentially we're still rooted in an understanding of China um, based on on policy that was set and new ideas that came about in the 1970s. I think there was a version, there was a variant of engagement uh, that began in the 70s and, and went through the end of the Cold War. The object of that uh, policy was to build up China's strength, 
it really didn't have anything to do with what was going on inside China, except to the extent that we could encourage China's economic and technological development so that it would be a stronger counterweight to Soviet power, because that was the major preoccupation in the 1970s and 1980s. And then when the Cold War ended and uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, there needed to be a new rationale for continuing this close relationship with China. And it had those elements that I mentioned earlier. Uh, but it wasn't just about ideas on our part. It also had to do with the belief that uh, an economic engagement with China was going to be tremendously profitable for American companies. Uh, and it did turn out to be for some, although it also had costs and uh, disadvantages that became clear later on. But the idea that China was going to be this source of growth and generate wealth and profits uh, for American and other Western companies was a very powerful one. I mean, one of the things that's always fascinating about your work is that you were yourself a practitioner. So there's a there's, there's always that element to your uh, academic academic work too, uh, and you, you're you're actually unsparing. It seemed to me uh, about the Bush administration and China. You you imply that we took our eye off the ball as regards China during that period. We poured trillions into uh, the global war on terror, and meanwhile, China was building up in its own backyard focusing around this kind of anti-access era denial strategy. Uh, and that's really when China begins acting like a great power. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yes, I think it is. Uh, there was beginning to be a concern about the direction of Chinese military developments in the 1990s. And I really think if not for 9-11, the Bush administration would have focused uh, its uh, its military policies, its defense policies, much more on developing counters to what China was doing and staying ahead of China. Uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld came back to the Defense Department for his second uh, run as Defense Secretary, I think, uh, because he saw it as his mission to transform the American military, to make a leap technologically uh, to new and next generations of weapons and military systems. Uh, and there was some of that, but 9-11 knocked the United States off course. It certainly diverted uh, resources that would otherwise have been directed to military developments that would have been useful uh, in dealing with China. But it also drew attention and focus away from uh, the Indo-Pacific, as we now call it, or the Asia-Pacific towards South and Central Asia and Middle East. Uh, and we didn't keep focused on what has emerged as the major challenge. I think we also, this was a time uh, when China had just entered the World Trade Organization. And at least initially, the expectation was that this was going to accelerate the process of transformation and liberalization. And there too, I think there was a lot of evidence that began to build up pretty quickly that that wasn't what was going on. And that Chinese authorities were sort of gaming the system uh, and using it in ways that benefited them, but not changing in the ways that we had expected. But I don't think there was really the the energy or focus on those problems uh, for really for the certainly for the two terms of the Bush administration. And I think the Obama administration too, uh, although it tried to, as they put it, to pivot towards Asia, it also was preoccupied with other problems. And I think also not inclined to take quite as seriously as they should have the challenge that China was posing. So there's lots of blame to go around, but there, there really is something critical that happens 
right at the turn of the century. And it's, and it's not insignificant that, that China begins to challenge the United States uh, global order at precisely the time when the United States itself is deeply unpopular around the world. No, that's, uh, that's not an accident. In fact, in 2002, uh, the CCP leadership promulgated this, this notion to the party that China now had entered what they called the 20-year period of strategic opportunity. I think in retrospect, it's clear that what that meant or what motivated that was the belief first that by entering into the WTO, China was going to enjoy accelerated growth, which it did. And secondly, and this was unspoken, that because of 9-11 and everything that followed, the United States was going to be preoccupied and distracted uh, for the better part of the next two decades. And this would give China time to build up its, as the Chinese strategists say, its comprehensive national power, so its wealth technological strength, its military, and so on, and then to begin to, to push back. I think the pushback really becomes more evident after the 2008 global financial crisis. I think that's when they they begin to feel that the moment has come and they could start to step out a bit more. Uh, but that was the direction, I think, in which they wanted to head all along. Uh, but but maybe the one hope for the West is the perennial great power uh, problem that you know China building the types of aircraft, naval vessels, communication systems, logistical networks you you describe uh, in order to project power on a global scale that is going to be incredibly expensive. Um, is is there a danger of, of overextension for China? I think there is in a number of different respects. Uh, you know the thing that's caused the counterbalancing behavior on the part of the United States and now other countries, certainly in the region, Japan, Australia, and, and also European countries to a degree, uh, start to focus more on the challenge that China poses in the military domain. That's a result of, of China's buildup. Um, it's diplomatic behavior in the last several years, particularly around the COVID pandemic, the so-called uh, wolf warrior diplomacy really sticking a thumb in the eyes of uh, governments of democratic countries also triggered a real shift in public opinion. So uh, there's overextension in that in that sense. Then there's a geographical element to this. They are beginning to step out into the world uh, in a more ambitious way. They have economic interests that now extend across the developing world as well as in the developed world. And they're beginning to build the military capabilities that they think they need to defend those interests and the sea lines of communication. And I think also their economic and, and technological development strategy has begun to appear uh, more obviously uh, threatening or harmful to the welfare of advanced industrial societies uh, as China has, has developed uh, moved closer and closer to the technological frontier, it's accelerated its effort to acquire technology from the West by any means necessary, including theft, but also sort of forced transfer, uh, trying to buy up Western companies and so on. And that too uh, has set off alarm bells. So I think overall, it's possible that what's happened in the last few years is that China has been premature. It's been uh, it's stepped out a little too early and it's triggered a response which may check its ambitions, but that remains to be seen. So uh, you say that we have to abandon the post-Cold War goal of transforming China and instead put together an alliance to defend the Western system. Uh, what, what does that mean in practice? I think it means uh, 
really recreating a liberal subsystem, if you like, that's trans-regional, that involves countries in, in Europe, in Asia, uh, in the Western Hemisphere, um, that's bound together by uh, common values, but also by economic ties and by a degree of strategic and military coordination. Um, uh, one way of looking at what's happened, and I try to make this case in, in the opening of the book and then come back to it at the end, is that what we've experienced in the last couple of years is the failure, the third failure uh, in a century of American efforts to create a truly global, integrated, liberal order. So we tried to do it after World War I, Woodrow Wilson, the League of Nations, that didn't work. Uh, towards the end of the Second World War, I think American leaders believed that they were on the verge of a, a second attempt to create such a system. That didn't work in part because the Soviet Union didn't want any part of it. It was not itself a liberal democracy, obviously, it pulled back into its own sphere. And then we tried again at the end of the Cold War with uh, what the uh, Clinton administration referred to as a policy of enlargement, trying to spread liberal democracy, uh, market economics, not only to China, of course, but across the former Soviet Union, across uh, its former empire. And I think what's what should be clear now is that that third attempt has has failed. And then the question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, in the book, I say, well, we could repeat the, uh, the mistakes of the 20s and 30s when we really just drew back into our shell, or we could relearn the lessons of the 40s and 50s, by which I mean creating this alliance or coalition of, of democracies. And I think we're kind of uh, feeling our way towards that, even if we don't fully acknowledge at this point or recognize perhaps that that's what we're doing. I think that's the direction we're going in. Although in, in the book, it's interesting. I mean, you you talked about a liberal system and an alliance of democracies there. In the book, you actually say strengthening the sinews of a partial liberal system. Um, that sounds a lot like Gene Kirkpatrick to me, that the alliance doesn't need to just be made up of democracies. Well, by partial, I actually meant partial as compared to global. So the global system would be this ideal Kantian world in which there would be only liberal democracies, <laughs> they'd have free trade and international institutions, international law. And so that's what we've been sort of trying to, to get to. But now that we failed, we have to make one that doesn't encompass the entire world, but includes primarily liberal democracy. So that's what I meant by partial. But there is this point about uh, whether it's a mistake to define our position and our, uh, our friends uh, in ideological terms. And it's true that during the Cold War, we had to uh, do business with regimes that were not liberal democracies. Uh, and I think it's clear that we're going to have to do that again. But that doesn't mean that the core of our of our alliance, the core of our coalition, uh, is not going to be made up of of liberal democratic states. I think it is. We're going to have to make compromises. We're going to have to deal with unpleasant regimes like you know the Saudis. Uh, but the, we shouldn't lose sight of what it is that we're trying to defend and trying to promulgate. And that's true in the developing world as well, where. I think China now is very clearly trying to extend its influence and hoping to, I think, to uh, encourage the development of regimes that share its values, if not its uh, identical uh, institutions. So I think we're in a, a the EU, 
the European Union referred to this as a systemic rivalry. And I think that's a good way of describing it. And and is the United States still in a position to be able to to lead in the long term on this? In one in one of your previous books, The Weary Titan, a book actually that had a huge influence on me as it happens. I mean, you talk about Britain at the turn of the twentieth century. Um, I mean, is is the United States now that overextended weary titan staggering under the too vast orb of its fate? <laughs> uh, I, I love that line. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think, well, let me put it this way. The the external burdens that we're bearing at this point are lighter if you just measure them as you know percentage of GDP devoted to defense, sort of a crude measure. Uh, they're lighter now than they were at the end of the Cold War when people were worrying about overextension. During the Cold War, we spent about 7% of GDP on average on defense. And the last couple of decades, it's been two or three percent. It's been bumped up because of the so-called war on terrorism. Uh, but we certainly can afford a global military posture. Uh, I'm less certain of our ability as a society to reach a consensus on the necessity of doing this and to implement policies that will enable us to do it. Uh, that, to me, remains to be seen. I guess I would say my biggest concern now as I look at this whole picture, is whether the democracies will come together to counter these aggressive authoritarian regimes, both Russia and China. We've had a little bit of encouraging evidence with regard to Russia. We'll see with respect to China. And the biggest worry I have there is whether the United States will be able to play the kind of uh, the role as catalyst and organizer of that effort that it's played in, in the past. And the reason I'm not sure about that is because of what's happening inside our country, the, the deep divisions and political polarization. In the past, it has been true that uh, external threats have tended to galvanize the public and enabled uh, consensus uh, across political lines uh, and enabled us to do the things we needed to do to defend our interests. That was true during the Cold War. Whether it's going to be true this time around remains to be seen. I think the early indications are, at least as regards China, that there's some reason for optimism. And I would say, too, uh, what we're seeing in Russia has been a welcome, uh, suggested a welcome coming together of Democrats and Republicans on the need to support a country against aggression uh, and on other aspects of our policy towards China. There's an element of a consensus on that that really doesn't exist on most other issues. So I'm guardedly optimistic, but I'm I'm concerned about it and, and we'll have to see. And of, of course, some commentators like Graham Allison, for example, have said that we're, we're eventually destined for war with China. President Biden has said that uh, we would come to the aid militarily of uh, of Taiwan if it was attacked by China. Not clear whether that was a gaffe or whether it was a strategic signpost. Um, I mean, what, what, what's your what's your feeling? Are, are, are we heading eventually to war? I don't think that's inevitable. Uh, I think if we a good do historian's things, answer, I should point I, out. I, well, <laughs> I'm, I, I think I, I'm maybe more of an historian than a political scientist. I could say that now at the latter stages of my career. Um, no, I don't think it's inevitable. Uh, I, I simply don't don't believe that. I don't really buy the whole Thucydides trap thing. But uh, whether it is likely or not is going to depend, or the likelihood of conflict is going to depend in large part on what we do. I mean, one of the things that 
is so troubling uh, about the fact that we were slow to acknowledge the challenge is that we now have to scramble. If we had been paying more attention and doing what we should have been doing over the last several decades to strengthen and uphold our position, uh, we wouldn't be in this state now of anxiety and having to uh, do a lot of things quickly to bolster our position. But I think if we're able to do that, we can deter aggression. We have ample resources and ample power with which to do that. My biggest worry is that uh, authoritarian regimes uh, will underestimate the resolve of the democracies, as they have historically done repeatedly, looking at these countries that can't seem to uh, get themselves in order and are deeply divided about this, that, and the other thing, and having a sort of contemptuous attitude towards their resolve and testing that resolve and then finding, in fact, that the democracies will are capable of pushing back. I think that's what we've seen in Ukraine. I worry about China and about the possibility that they might underestimate our resolve and underestimate our capabilities. To me, that's the greatest threat of conflict in the next 10 years. Not that we're going to do things that will provoke them, but that we're going to fail to do things to deter them. So the book is Getting China Wrong. It's written by my guest, Aaron Friedberg, and published by Polity. Uh, but for now, Aaron, such a pleasure. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>